0: Thank you Anwin and uh, team for that. It's a lovely service meaningful and uh, worshipful as well. Really, really happy new year to you all. if I haven't wished you that already, I trust it's a blessed one and God is with you. you see all of God's promises fulfilled, all his purposes fulfilled in your life. So if you see visitors, it's lovely to have you with us. See Adam. Great to have you with us, Adam. Lovely to have you. Adam was the, uh, well he was part of our church as a, in the brigade in youth when he was here with his mum and dad and also led our youth with uh, Angie, wasn't it, at that time. So great to have you with us. He's now pastor of uh, Christian Life Church in, uh, um, where is it, Chipley, that's right. And uh, it's good. It's great, isn't it, when we think of so many people who've come through the church over the years and uh, Serving God all over the place, even in Bradford, uh, it's wonderful, so praise God. The, the, the bulletin, just a little thing, I, I, there are no preacher's names in the bulletin this, this week and next week, and it's, it's only a little thing, and I, I, I might change my mind on this uh, later on, but I thought we'd just not have preacher's names in for a while anyway, just to get away from the focus of personalities really, um, so that we come because we want to come and to hear God's Word. And I know if, you, if you, people want to pre- pray for the next preacher or next week, just have a word with me if you'd like to uh, um, pray for that person's name, whoever's preaching. But it's only a little thing, and I might change my mind, or we might change it later on, but uh, just for now we're going to do that as a, as a focus, get away from that. So this morning we're going to begin a new series in the book of Nehemiah. The title, if you want a title, is Building for the Gospel. That's the whole series, title. Normally in the first, on the first Sunday of the New Year, I'd preach on the New Year's text that we have. We always choose a text for the New Year to give us sort of a vision and a, and a focus for our uh, year. But today, for the first time, as long as I can remember anyway, I'm not going to do that because the text for this year we'll get the cards next week for that, is a, is a text that we'll be referring to again and again as we go through Nehemiah. The text actually is, we don't need to put this up on the screen, but it's Matthew 16, it's taken from Matthew 16, 18, where Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And that's a great text. I would have... I would love to preach on that, maybe I will as we go through the uh, series, but uh, that that will be a recurring theme as we go through Nehemiah. (coughs) The book of Nehemiah, you might want to turn to that if you've got your Bibles, I'm not going to read it in a section, I'm going to go through it verse by verse or or section by section. (coughs) The author of the book of Nehemiah is, surprise, surprise, Nehemiah. And it's, it's, it's written often in the first-person singular, as you would say, write your diary, I did this, I did that, I had a curry, I had stomachache, and that sort of thing. You, it's, it's, it's in first-person first person singular, but there is a thought that, he, that actually Ezra wrote the book of Nehemiah using Nehemiah's diaries. Um, in fact, that's a Hebrew tradition, because when... The Old Testament came to be translated into the Greek um, in the 3rd century BC, that became known as the Septuagint version. Ezra and Nehemiah were one book. It was a tradition that Ezra wrote the two books, but for the sake of simplicity, I'll assume it was Nehemiah, not Nezra, (laughs) Nehemiah. Okay. Let's begin, verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. it came to pass in the month of Chislev in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan, the citadel. Lots of facts there. There are some people who God uses in unique ways. There are some people that God has a special work for in his plans. And Nehemiah is one of those. God used him in a very special way. Yet we don't know much about his background. Verse 1 there says he was the son of Hakaliah. Who the heck was Hakaliah? I hear you cry. We don't know. Nobody, we don't know. It just comes once in another list and it's the same thought. Nehemiah was the son of Hakaliah. In ter- so, in terms of Jewish pedigree, Nehemiah was a nobody in that sense. He, did, he didn't have a history that we know about, just an ordinary person. And that's often the way that God works, isn't it? God uses ordinary people to sometimes do extraordinary things. If you feel ordinary, like I do, as most people do, be encouraged, God uses ordinary people. And Nehemiah was just like that. He lived in a place called Shushan, also known as Susa. That, that was the capital city of, this, of that great Persian empire of the day. It was the place actually where the, the king's winter palace was. And that was the, this was around 440 BC question to ask is, what was Nehemiah, a Jew, doing in Persia, in a place called Shushan, in the capital there? The answer to that is that most likely, about 150 years before this, before Nehemiah's time at this time, probably his great-grandparents were among those who were carried away captive by the Babylonians Babylonian army and taken from Jerusalem and from Judah right the way through, about 800 miles, to Babylon. And there were scores of thousands who were taken as slaves. In time, the Babylonian empire was superseded, overcome by the Persian empire. And so Nehemiah is brought up under the king of Persia in a foreign land. If you you look at that first verse of the next chapter, we find out what Nehemiah actually did. Oh, sorry, the last verse of the the first chapter. We find out what Nehemiah did. Just a last phrase where it says, for I was the king's cupbearer. And uh, he was the king's cupbearer and the king was called Artaxerxes, verse Chapter 2, verse 1, In the, came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him. I love that name. I don't think it'll ever catch on. But Artaxerxes, just, if you want to remember it, just think of the budget, all right? Artaxerxes. I was thinking of that all night, all right? So you can forget that. So Artaxerxes, he was the king of Persia. Nehemiah was the cupbearer, and his one of his roles was to taste the wine of the king. Which you might think, if you like wine, unless you're a teetotal, of course, you might think that's a great job to have. But actually, it wasn't such a good job in that you could say he was the poison filter, <laughs> the human poison filter. So if anybody had an assassination attempt on the Persian king, it would literally be, goodbye Nehemiah, long live the king. He was, he was the guy in charge of that. But, actually, it was a much better job than that might seem. It was a position of immense trust and responsibility. Nehemiah must have been considered someone who was totally reliable because the king was entrusting his life to that man. In fact, it's thought that Nehemiah in that role would have responsibility for se- the security of all the kings in all of the, uh, sorry, in all of the kitchens of all of the palace palaces of that, of that king. And to be a man in that public position, who stood in such a, a prominent position really next to the king, who the king probably would have gone for advice and talked to. He must have been very cultured, very intelligent. He must have had a high standing. It was a position of prestige. One of the Greek historians, writing in the same century as Nehemiah, this was a man called Herodotus, said the cupbearer's office was highly esteemed among the Persian people. It was well sought after. It was a very, very important job. So, going back to verse one. I'll just pick up in the second part. It says, it came to pass in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year as I was in Shushan, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came with men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, And concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The survivors who are left from the captivity in the provinces are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. So it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying. Before the God of heaven. About hundred years before this time, the Persian king, King Cyrus, had allowed a large group of Jews to return to Jerusalem. These were volunteer Jews. There were about 50,000 went from the Persian kingdom back to Jerusalem. And they went back with the express purpose of rebuilding Jerusalem. The first thing they did was to build the temple, or build the altar, and then build the temple. And then, of course, they had to build places where they could live again, because (coughs) Jerusalem had been basically razed to the ground and, and, and almost destroyed. And it took them about 20 years to rebuild the temple. But then they began to experience a lot of opposition. And uh, there, was a lot of at- uh, there were attacks against them. And it culminated in an edict, a law, from the Persian king to stop the work altogether. So they were ev- eventually, they were forced to stop the work. They would have loved to have rebuilt the walls all around Jerusalem. They never got around to doing that. And so everything ground to a halt. So fast forward, eighty years to Nehemiah's day, and there's a a party who's come, including his brother Hanani, from Jerusalem, and they've come back to Babylon. And Nehemiah, he's keen to learn what's happened there. It's it's, it's natural; he wants to know how things are going. I think it's just like Sam and Hannah when uh, Kay and I went to Nepal to visit them. They wanted to know, you know, how things are going, what's happening. The important things, you know, did the football team win, that sort of thing. And Nehemiah asks that, and he's, no doubt he's expecting to hear a good report. That the walls are being built, that the people are strong, and, there's, and, 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 and they're successful, and there's prosperity, and God is blessing. And they tell him this devastating news. That the walls are broken down. The burnt gates haven't been replaced. The people are in despair, they're dispirited. The the, the morale is low. And he's overwhelmed by that, and it affects him so deeply that he weeps. And he spends hours and days in prayer and fasting, praying for this. Verse 4, so it was when I heard these words and I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. You know, how, how we react to situations and circumstances tells a lot about our character. The way which we respond to things it sort of it reveals our perspective so often. I was thinking of that little saying, um, two men looked from prison bars, one saw mud and one saw stars. Nehemiah, he heard of the ruined city. He, he heard of the terrible state of the church, if you like, of that day, of God's people. And he wept and he mourned and he fasted and he prayed. I wonder why that was? Was he a member of the Stonewalling Society? Was he interested in historic buildings, preservation? No. He, He was concerned for the people. He was concerned for the people who lived there. I mean he was a Jew and of course The fellow Jews were back in Jerusalem. But as far as we know, Nehemiah had never been to Jerusalem. That was 800 miles away. He was the king's cupbearer. That that was a highly successful calling, vocation, if you like. He would have had comfort and security. It was a successful life. I was thinking, it's, it's very easy, isn't it, to become immune to other people's suffering when your lifestyle isn't one like that. <coughs> when we enjoy relative riches and comforts, to actually enter into other people's troubles and feel for them. That wasn't Nehemiah's fault or one of his faults. He was a man who cared for people. You know some people and I suppose we all have to guard against this we can be more concerned about things than we can about people. Nehemiah allowed the pain of others to soften his heart. He didn't become calloused in his heart to other people's suffering. He cared for them. He had a well paid job. He was secure. He had a comfortable lifestyle. But He hadn't allowed himself, or those things to be. He hadn't allowed himself to become preoccupied with those things, but he still had a deep concern for the welfare of others, for their protection, for their care. I was thinking: uh, some of these things, of course, will apply to our, our building project. There's a lot that, a lot of principles that we can apply. One of the things it, it reminds me of is that the building project is not about building. It's not about a building, it's about people. And uh, I don't want ever to, to, to ever tire of saying that. The building matters, of course, and, and we're going to give it and we're giving it close scrutiny and a lot of detail and attention. But we remind ourselves constantly, especially as leaders, it's about when Jesus said, I will build my church, he wasn't talking about bricks and mortar, was he? He was talking about people, living stones. And that's, that really is what the building project is about. It's not about the, the building, as us. the buildings, we say again and again, it's just a servant to serve God's purposes. We, we want to see people reached for Christ, we want to see people discipled for Jesus. We want to see people, God's purpose is fulfilled. That's the purpose. That's what our aim is and our goal is. That's what we're about. That's what excites us as opposed to just a building. And so verse 4 says this, And so it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Nehemiah would have been able to eat the most beautiful food in that kingdom. And yet he was ready to fast and to pray. I think that was part of his condition. He just probably lost his appetite, I think, one thing. He was so deeply grieved. But I think there was a deliberateness in that fasting to seriously show to God how serious he was in his praying, And so here we have Nehemiah willing to deny himself food so that he could give himself to prayer. You know, fasting isn't for God's sake. A Christian, when they fast and pray, they're not fasting for God's sake, they're doing it for their sake. I wonder, when did you last fast and pray because you are so concerned for other people and when did i do that fasting is a, is a way of reminding ourselves of how much we are taken up with the material it might be it, it can be fasting for food or it, it can be fasting for any, of, of anything that actually we enjoy so much, it becomes so integral to our lives. It, it might be, you can fast from television, you, you can fast from sport, you can fast from social media. It, but it's, it's actually saying to God, I'm, gonna, I'm willing to deny myself those things for this period, so that I can show to myself, and show to you if you, know, if, if you like, that I am serious about this, and to give myself to praying for this. What about my neighbours and my friends and family members who don't know Jesus? I think that Nehemiah was the sort of man who would fast and pray for them, for people who were close to his heart. He was the sort of person who cared enough for people, and he's... And his care led him to action. You know, people can be, cons- we, I can be concerned, but concern doesn't necessarily lead to action. It doesn't lead to actually doing anything. It, it really is for care to move from, if you like, love, to compassion, I need to be willing to do something. Compassion is the action of love. And so Nehemiah had that, and, and I uh, just bring that out as a challenge to myself, do you, have you got that sort of a concern, concern for people to come to Christ, to be, to be an effective witness, to, for your neighbours, you know, I can't, I, in some in some sense, I, I can't care for the world, I might not be able to care for Bradford, but I can, I can, I can be concerned and care for the ones I touch and reach, I was thinking of the Parable of the Good Samaritan. You know, two people passed by. I'm sure they were careful. I'm sure they had concern for that man, the priest and the Levite. I'm sure they they really felt for that man. But it didn't affect their actions. But the Samaritan, he stopped. And actually, he paid the price to help that man in that parable. Now, he wasn't responsible for all the mugging victims in that area, but he was responsible for the one person he could affect an impact. And that's true for us, isn't it? We, we, we might not have be able to reach everybody, but what about my next-door neighbour? And what about my family friend or fr- family or friend who, who is on my heart, that God's led on my heart? I came across this. This is a a quote, it was actually one of George Bernard Shaw's plays, and uh, he put these words into the the mouth of the Reverend Anthony Anderson, and this is what, in this play, this reverend said, the worst sin towards our fellow creatures is not to hate them, but to be indifferent to them. That's the essence of inhumanity. And that's a non-Christian, I think, attitude, actually. And... But we, as Christians, we should have even more care and concern. So let's be like a Nehemiah, a man who cared enough to fast and to pray. Verse 5, verse 7 to 7. And I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, this is his prayer. O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe you, sorry and observe your commandments please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant which i pray before you now day and night for the children of israel your servants and confess the sins of the children of israel which we have sinned against you both my father's house and i have sinned interesting He, he collects himself, doesn't he? It's he's, he's a collective prayer. He identifies with the sins of the white, of the people. We have sinned. Verse seven, we have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Just about this prayer, the prayer is actually just a sample prayer of Nehemiah's praying. In, in the book of Nehemiah, there are 12 prayers recorded. Some of them are just simple prayers. And some of them are longer like this. But it, and it, and it, if, you, if you compare the time date um, between, let's say, 1 verse 1 and 2 verse 1, it's about four months that he was praying and fasting. So this is just a sample. You see how he started? Verse 5. I pray, Lord God of heaven, great and awesome God, you who keep covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments. He started his prayer by focusing on God, on God's greatness and God's faithfulness. His focus was on God. I think there are different ways to to pray Um, Some people feel you should always start prayer with praise, Uh, you know, enter and and, and fulfill what the Psalm said. It's Psalm 100, I will enter your courts with thanksgiving in my heart. Uh, I will enter your gates with praise. Some say, well, we should start with confession and and, and get right with God. Um, Always, that's the first time. Other times, start with requests. Um, Be careful for nothing but in everything, by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known unto God. people have different thoughts on that actually scripture is full of variety and there's all sorts of different prayers and examples of people who are entering as it were God's presence in prayer and I don't think there's any set way here Nehemiah begins his prayer by focusing on God if you like worshipping God the greatness of God and then he moves into a, a supplication and then he moves into confession so there's different ways to pray. there's no set way it seems to me to pray in fact a lot of nehemiah's prayers they're just like arrow prayers you know we used to call them telegraph prayers i suppose you them text prayers just quickly up to god and, and god answers those prayers or god hears and answers so, Nehemiah, he begins by focusing on God, not on his situation. That's, that's important, isn't it? When, when it comes to these, these things that we're facing, and, and Anwin led us in the thoughts of fears that come across, and we, we might fear in the, in the coming year. We often fear things that will never happen, we, we think we fear unnecessary things. I came across this, one Christian writer put it like this. Look at the many if questions we raise. What if I do not find a job? Find a friend, a house, or a spouse? What am I going to do if I get sick? If an accident happens, if I lose my friends, if my marriage does not work? What if tomorrow the weather is bad, the buses are on strike, an earthquake happens? What if someone steals my money, breaks into my house, kills me? And then he goes on. I don't know what his his answer is, but unnecessary fears. You know, whenever we're facing in this coming year, whatever we're facing, let's get into the habit, and I speak to myself here, of lifting our eyes on God, fixing our eyes on God's faithfulness. You know, when, when we're facing things in this coming year, don't look down, don't look around, don't look in, look up. Keep our eyes on God's greatness. On His power, on His faithfulness, on His love, on His unchanging nature. Let's do that with our building project. You know, there's a lot of if, what ifs. Oh goodness me! What, what if this? What if that? No, God is greater. It's the same God that Nehemiah worshipped, and praised, prayed to. And then Nehemiah. He, what, Sort of winds up his prayer, let's uh, go through from verse 8 to the end. Remember, I pray, the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you up among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast out to the farthest parts of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Now, these are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your own great name, by your great power, and by your strong hand. O Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name. And let your servant prosper this day, I pray and grant him mercy in the sight of this God, for I was the king's cupbearer. I love the way he starts there, uh, verse 8. Remember, I pray the word. Why, why did he have to remind God? He was reminding God. Does, does God forget? No. God never forgets anything. He's omniscient, all-knowing. God actually You can see this from prayers in the scripture and examples. God loves us to remind him of his word. And to remind him of his promises. Because in reminding him, we're actually reminding ourselves. But we're saying, actually, these promises are your word and I am counting on that word. And you are faithful. And you cannot deny yourself. You can't deny your name. You will honour that promise. So I'd encourage you in your praying, I don't know if you do this, to learn how to bring God's word back to him for your situations. In your quiet time, seek out those words, those promises, the, the scriptures, and remind God of those daily. You know, Lord, you said this, and I thank you for that, and I'm going to call upon you and stand upon that word. And by doing that, you're showing that you're serious about God's word. You're saying, that word cannot fail, and you, God, will honor that word. That's, I think that's such a key to intercession, to effective intercession. And so as Nehemiah prays, his burden increases. And as he prays, hope stirs of something greater. And as he prays, a vision begins to take form in his his heart of what God wants to do. And as he seeks God, faith begins to stir that that vision will come into into place, that God's got the power. Humanly speaking, he couldn't see how that would happen. He couldn't just leave his job (laughs) and just have a break, have a holiday, and go to Jerusalem. You couldn't do that in in his situation. How could he ever influence what was happening there? Yet he had a vision and a faith in God that that vision would come to pass as he prayed. He was a man of vision. I want to finish with this thought. As Christians, we, I, you, should be a man and a woman of vision. we should have a greater vision than just getting up every day and seeing what happens we we should have goals i believe that now some people are not goal wired if you know what i mean there are some i know some who set goals every day and they've got five points and they've got the goals for the year i'm not like that but at the same time i think we all should have direction in our lives we should be people of direction As God's people so every day what do you think about as you wake up what are your thoughts as you think about that day our thoughts should be not necessarily consciously but it should be undergirding our our whole being today I want to please God that's my aim I want to walk with Jesus today that's my aim I want to love people And I want to do that in a practical way. That's my aim. That's my goal today. I want to be the person God wants me to be. I want to be part of Christ building his church. I want people to be used, and my life to be used in people's lives, even if it's by my influence today, for God's glory. You know, we we shouldn't be like sort of leaves blown about in the wind and sort of every day we get up and... Depends on our circumstances, what happens, and we're sort of of aimless. The Christian life should not be aimless. We should have a goal. We should have a purpose. Every day, looking to please God. Are you that sort of a person? Am I? Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. I believe that that was every day his will his plan, his God. You know, the Apostle Paul, he said this, therefore I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. We and you, we need to be people of direction, God's direction for that day and that that will direct us for the year. The year will take care of itself, won't it? If that's every day we're putting Christ first. That's why it's good, I think, to read, the new, to aim to read either the Bible through the year or a New Testament through the year or Old Testament. You know, have, have, have a go. There's programs out there on the back to help you do that. Christ hasn't, hasn't redeemed us to be aimless, to be purposeless, but to be purposeful. To do the will of God, to please God, to love God, to love others, to do it practically, to be concerned for their souls, and to be available to be used. May God, by God's grace, help you to be a man and a woman like Nehemiah in that way. We're going to sing. We're going to invite the band up. I thought I'd pray after we sing, but we're going to sing. Prayer that God Himself would be our vision. Be Thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Nought be all else to me, save that Thou art. Though my best thought in the day and the night, waking or sleeping, Thy presence, my light. The whole thing is about God, isn't it? God being at the centre of our lives.